Welcome to the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel. Brain Fuel is a cerebral beverage that helps you find your flow state, enhance mental focus, and cognitive endurance. Elevate the brain and the body. To get yours, visit brainfuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, fuel.com, and enter the code LIFO15 at checkout for your 15% off discount, L-I-F-O-1-5, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office, powered by Brain Fuel. Here with John Nemeth, Director of Sports for the Americas at AECOM. And we're going to talk a little bit about what goes into new facilities, new projects, um, what's ultimately behind enhancing the fan experience. And uh, there's obviously an arms race, you could say, from the facility perspective that's been going on for a while now. And um, bigger, better, more shiny. I don't know. Uh, but John's going to talk all about it and, and also how he got into it. So nonetheless, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Looking forward to it. So how do you get into working on not only projects from the collegiate and the, and the pro level, but like what is, for, for those who are listening, what is AECOM? If, yeah. if you haven't heard of it, what does it stand for? I mean, how do you get into this sort of work? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I used to, it used to be more clever. So we're a, you know, we're a large multidisciplinary global firm. We do just about anything you can imagine. Uh, I used to describe us before I said we were right between chocolate and dog food because in the, on the, you know, Fortune 500 list, it was right between Purina and Hershey's. So people are like, oh, okay, I know what Purina, I know what Purina is. I know what Hershey's is. Oh, you're a big company. Okay, I get that. But no, we do, we do everything. We build high rises, we dig tunnels, we, we do like, nuclear repository management. We decommission nuclear power plants. We design and build some of the biggest, most complicated sports stadiums. We, we manage and, and, and implement Olympic games. And you name it, we do it. We build cities, we plan cities. Uh, we were the first, we were the, the first uh, economist for Walt Disney. Um, we were the ones who helped Walt Disney come up with essentially the, the business model, if you will, for Florida, because he's like, I don't want to repeat what just happened to me in California. So he hired one of the legacy companies of AECOM to sort of essentially lay out the plan for what we all know now is basically Southern Florida um, or Disney World around Orlando. So we, we do a lot of a really, really interesting things, design theme parks. Really, there's just, I would challenge people to say, well, do you do this? And we have one of the guys in our business, his, his, his line is, we do that. You like and, and that's one of the games he plays when he meets new clients or like, just throw anything at me you can imagine. We do that. So that's, that's what we do, but we're, we're in the sports side and we have that similar kind of diversity of, of offerings. There, there isn't anything really in the sports space that we don't bring to the table, construction, economics, full, full technology integration, design, architecture, engineering, uh, cost, I mean, just anything around sports other than like maybe player management. Uh, we don't sell sponsorships thinking we probably might but yeah we we do just about anything you could imagine that goes into the the planning finance design construction we don't manage or operate any facilities we did have a couple overseas that we did but yeah we we do a lot a lot a lot of crazy things so well let's put it this way you build a big big building in order to have a naming rights sponsor in which in theory you could say you sell sponsorships um (laughs) because they're not putting their name on anything that isn't really cool, big, shiny, and makes a difference and, and an impact. Um, when you think about 
the work though, I mean, obviously these things don't pop up in, you know, weeks, they don't pop up in months and they sometimes don't even pop up in years. So just walk us through the process of the thought around a project, A, what are kind of the, if you want to call it the legs of the stool that's needed to make a project come to life um, and kind of the different constituents that are involved. Yeah, and I think it's it's a really interesting moment um, in, in sports business because I think there, we're definitely seeing a, another sea change. You know, you could say, hey, 30 years ago, you know, the, the game of, of sports or the experience of sports changed from just like wanting to be in the building to, you know, this notion of premium seating and how that completely transformed everything from professional to minor leagues to college, like some of those simple concepts rippled through an industry, you know, for 30 years and it changed the way that we view and consume and experience live, live sports and entertainment. Um, and you've seen that in other, you know, smaller sectors, retro ballparks and baseball, you know, arms race in, in college football, bigger, you know, who's got the most capacity in college football. Like there's all these, these, these nuanced trends that I think people who listen to this show kind of can understand and say, yep, I, I see that. I can measure time by that. But I think the thing that's really interesting about where we're at now is, you know, for, for one reason or another, and I'm not judging, we're, we're at a, a, a new precipice where, you know, revenue was always king, but how you generate revenue, who's responsible for generating revenue, what that revenue is used for is being viewed in a way that it's never been viewed before. Like when, when the, the source of, of income needed to build a facility is a taxpayer or a student or a, a wealthy series of individuals, the, the focus on the pro forma has historically been not as intense as where I think we are now, where, you know, because of a variety of reasons, tax law changes, public sentiment, I mean, you name it, the ability, the how we capitalize in investment in sports, regardless of what we're talking about, minor league, any of the professional leagues, big college, small college, whatever it might be, is different. And I, I think we're at a, a real sort of moment in time where, where historically sports venues have been seen like convention centers and certain other things where they're, they're e economic activity generators. And I know there's a lot of research and you know people who, who feel stronger or more passionate on that scale, but they're, they're economic development generators. They bring people to cities, you know, like they're, they're just, they do. Um, I'm not here to, to, to litigate, you know, the value of that, but they do. And so now the question is, if, if the onus is on the, the entity, the team, school, the club to generate something, and, and maybe we, it's not as attractive to have a high net worth individual you know, donate, we can't, taxpayers have kind of lost their interest in wanting to do that. How do we now visualize and create that next generation of facilities in a way where the business model needs to be scrutinized and developed different than it's been for the last 30 plus years? Because before, again, you didn't care about the pro forma for a venue when the taxpayers were the one paying the bill. When, when it's your money, or it's a private entity money, or it's a public private, and and there and the private now has a has a has a P and L. They have a profit and loss stake in paying the debt back, in addition to earning enough income to pay free agents, coaches, whatever it might be. That calculus is very different, and I would argue that 
there's been generations of buildings, name them all, they're all gonna be the same. That probably wouldn't be done again if you had to go back and sort of do a forensic analysis on the business plan or the pro forma of what they, the, the underlying assumptions. And, and a lot of things that where I, where I guess I would go to that sort of maybe to bring it back home is when we look at sports projects now, we look at sports projects kind of like airports. Again, airports are another version of a, an economic development engine. People, that's the front door to a city or a community like a, you know, like some might argue sports are a front door to a university. It's the way people view it. And, and the way airports now have developed and we all know them because we see them, it's retail. There's all these things that extract money from your wallet while you're going from gate A to gate B, while you're lingering, while you're delayed. But that turns over. It's not the same airport for 30 years. The building is the same, but they're refreshing that experience. It has a retail flair. It has a food and beverage entertainment flair. And they're they're setting that 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 course for maybe two or three years. And then they're updating the concept as tastes and trends change. And, and you see that in that building type. I think that's where we've been trying to start to have those that dialogue with a lot of our college or a lot of our sports clients, whether they're college or pro or whatever is, there used to be this sort of set it and forget it model with facility construction. Again, it didn't matter what league size, whatever is you built it and you left it alone for 30 years. And now we're saying, hey, you're gonna have to make some big capital expenditures. A seating bowl is a seating bowl, a field, a parking lot, some of that stuff, it's gonna be there a long time, but you need to start thinking about a percentage of your facility that like the day you open it, you need to, st to start thinking about how it's going to be refreshed. And that's like, that's like making a pizza. That's like making a pizza pie and going, uh, I just made it with cheese, but now it no longer has cheese. What else am I going to put on it? I mean, mm. it, and, and it's a different mindset, right? So what venues 30 years ago were built for different than what they're built for now, right? The, as, you're, as you're talking about it, the business models have changed. The ownerships have changed to where you no longer are just using it for the eight football games or the, you know, 81, you know, baseball games or, or whatever it might be. Like this is now just a venue or a facility that hosts all sorts of things. And oh, by the way, it happens to host eight football games a year. Well, and, and the business of sport has changed. I mean, look at that salaries. You have all these new professional leagues. There's expectation about income levels. We have salary caps. We have evolution of different media deals. We're seeing, you know, streaming, streaming coming into this and how we can sort of a la carte consume different media. I mean, it's a lot of it's been evolving, but that's also created a dialogue between where's income coming from? You know, we're, we're, we're on the, again, the precipice of, of sports gambling, sports books in a variety of, of different leagues and sports. All of that's changing the, eco, the business of sports and the, what is the facility's role in that business. And it may not be the same for everybody, but to your point, even the way that we experienced in our perception, like, hey, there were a number of, you know, incredibly tragic global events around safety and capacity and circulation and access and we, we, we reacted to that, you know, as a lot of things do. Again, think about like airport design, reacting to hijacking in the 60s and 70s. Well, we, when's the last time you've heard about a plane getting hijacked? Like it just, it, it takes time, but the industry reacts. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're still designing a, an experience for something that happened 20 years ago. 
you have that with with venues. There was this whole big push in the in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s about we need space and you big open concourses and all this room. And then people started to say, well, yeah, but when the building's not full, it feels empty. And nobody wants to be in an empty restaurant or an empty club or an empty theme park. Well, sometimes it's nice to go to Disney and have it not be packed. But like you get a certain energy from intense crowd experiences, music festivals, food festivals, whatever it might be. Everybody wants to be in an area where you feed off of that intensity and that energy. And, and we've created a lot of buildings that are never full and they feel empty. And then, well, that ballpark experience was okay. But if I could pick and choose that, I might want to go, you know, rollerblade, or I might want to go to this live music show in 3000 seat intimate venue, House of Blues, or whatever the thing may be. We as consumers are so much more sophisticated in 2021 than we ever were in 1996. Well, and a couple of things there because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the, the intimacy of your experience, right? Whether you can be close up. Some people like going to a spring training game because they have a much more intimate experience because you're actually closer to the field in which those stadiums were designed because of the smaller capacity and everything. It, as opposed to going to a major league stadium that is kind of this big, vast, you know, massive experience that's kind of the ooh and ah, wow, look at all this. And the experience is not right or wrong for the individual in either case, right? There's people, there's fans who prefer one versus another and, and vice versa, but to the experience component, you know, I want you mentioned kind of the, the world events that have happened that have forced certain things. Like obviously we've been going through a lot over the last 18, you know, 16, 18 months. How does that then affect how buildings, facilities, et cetera, are thought about going forward, knowing that, in a year, thing perspectives could change, or a year from then, perspectives can change. Like, how how do we go about that? Well, and, and you need to be, yeah. I mean, you need to be nimble. I mean, that that's one of the. I mean, I, I might say some things that some people might listen to, and it may be controversial, but I think that the if from where I sit, and I've, I'm 25 years in sports business, and I've had you know phenomenal opportunity to interact with with individuals like you through the Ohio University program, and and a handful of a couple, a handful of others too, but. So, I mean, you kind of see where, where sport business education comes from, you know, the, the opportunity to get to have a 20 plus year relationship with people like Andy, where you really, it's not about designing the buildings, but you're understanding, you're hearing the pain points when you're, when you're not in a dialogue where you're talking about drawing or building or pouring concrete or erecting steel, you start to hear like, well, there's a lot of institutional experience and institutional knowledge and and perceptions about the way things have always been. And that permeates through sponsorship and sales, ticket sales, venue operations, safety, security, design, construction, like it's everywhere in that whole, like, well, this is the way we do it. In, in a lot of ways is the biggest impediment to innovation at all levels of sports. And there's good reasons, like, look, there's good reasons for the way things have always been, but we're, when we're in this moment of sort of real change, safety and security, like we have, we have, a, we have ability to implement invisible technology solutions that can make a building more secure than it could have been even five years ago. And there's a lot of, you know, public privacy discussions. There's, there's a lot of things to, to be really clear and understand, you know, you don't want to be sort of headlong and reckless, but just the advance, the rapid advancement of technology in the last five years, 10 years even, and what we can do for safety and security to, 
you can't look, you can't always prevent bad people from doing bad things, but you can make it much harder. And, and I think to your point, like even the, the Ariana Grande bombing from a couple of years ago has impacted the way we think about venue perimeters and security and screening. And like, you just, you really, every one of those events informs the way we do things now. And the, the answer to the question is, it requires people to come out of their comfort zone, to be nimble, to challenge, in some cases, well-held well beliefs. And, and it might've been valid five years ago. It might not be as valid today. It might, it might be, but being able to have that discussion with folks around everything, whether it's design, throughput, concession stand, like everything, that's where innovation is coming from and not innovation for innovation's sake, but you're really saying, hey, and now even like, as we get into this era of contactless um, F and B, like the way that impacts buildings, consumer experiences, transaction time, monetization, I've got your credit card now, everything's like, what does that do to fan behavior and the ability to introduce other technologies and other experiences in a way that, man, once you get them away from, I wait in line, I order the beer, I'm balancing the hot dog, like, like that whole experience that we've all been through more times, and now it's completely seamless and they're not interacting with anybody. And they like, what does that do to the ability to sell into them, enhance their experience? How does that older venue with new technology now maybe have gaps that it's, we it's, need we need to think about, you know? Yeah, it's like it's like trying to download the newest iOS, you know, upgrade on the iPhone six. Like we're six, you know, six, seven versions ahead of that, right? And so there's only some things that are going to work and others, quite frankly, just the infrastructure is not there for it to happen. And um, to your point on innovation, like, yes, there's great ideas. All of them cost money, but some cost more money if the infrastructure isn't there either. So how do you go about, you know, yes, the bigger that, you know, the, the, the facilities that are bigger and better can always, can always get bigger and better. And, and as the infrastructure is there, you can always add on more and this, that, and the other, but what about the thousands of facilities that just, they're not there yet, but there's, but they cost too much to completely rebuild it. But then do you renovate it? But then also to your point about the revenue, like where's the funding coming from? If there's not enough funding, how, how does all that work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, of the, I'll bring this up, but it's not meant to be a commercial, but it's indicative of, of where maybe I think some of the thinking needs to go. There's this whole well-established market feasibility industry in sports. And again, top to bottom, side to side, all sizes, you need a market study. What does that market study do? What does it tell you? What does it not tell you? How valid is it? How worthless is it? And I've started to say, look, I think there's a, there's a, there's a section of that say 50% of that industry is, is 100% obsolete today. The methodologies, the approach, there's no data, there's no conclusions, but it's a warm blanket. You know, the old saying, you never got fired for hiring IBM, still exists around that thing. But that thing informs a whole variety of economic levers and decision matrices versus then looking at, hey, we have this whole industry in sports and entertainment and broadcast around consumer behavior, consumer research, industry research, behavioral research, trends, psychology and sports, like merge those two. And now you have something that really can start to inform where consumer trends are going, what the income potential might be, which would inform the investment, which might inform a timeline, which might inform a capital spend. 
but the industry's got to get to that point because right now it's still some of the research is helpful and it's interesting and and it justifies maybe ad buys or sponsorships or things like that but there's a whole lot of it that's not being applied to a business case decision discussion around some of these whether to build new or renovate what to renovate how much should we be spending what's the pro forma on that does this product really sell in this market at the right price to justify the payment so in three years we can tear it out and do it again that rarely happens it rarely happens it needs to happen a lot more but it rarely happens and it's kind of the reactive it's the reactive setting as opposed to the proactive setting right yeah. uh, oh crap, this is starting to fall apart. This pipe bursted, so now we gotta go about it. Well, what is that gonna take? Well, we have no other choice as opposed to the proactive approach. I mean, that you, I'm sure you see often. Well, that, I mean, I think, look, there's a thesis here and, and I've, I've done some writing and, and some things in the last two years about this, but it also like when, when we've worked with teams, you never have more money than you do when you're building something new. Money's raining from the sky. Once you open that building, you went from the penthouse to the outhouse in terms of cash flow and income. I wonder if that isn't because the building planning was flawed in the first place. The building's not really generating enough positive cash flow to help you. And that's why everything is a Band-Aid and everything's a pipe here and a wire there and a switch there. And when you start really talking to some of these people in these older buildings, they don't have a lot of income coming through to invest in O&M, capital upgrades. Like it's it, it all becomes a very budget-based, like we can only afford X per year. But it, but I, I the thesis is, well, that's because the original building planning was flawed. How much space you needed to operate it, how much space you needed for, for multi-purpose entertainment, how much space you needed to support fan behaviors. Like, I think a lot of that is flawed and it needs to be revisited. If you were, you know, again, it's like, like you watch like uh, Ford versus Ferrari and the optimization around every ounce of an engine and the pistons and the linings and the weights and the brakes or that old experience in a, a couple of years ago in F1 with the plastic engine because of the weight the plastic would like all you got to be constantly looking for horsepower. I just don't think we have the mechanics to do it or that generation is coming through like you're seeing a lot more analytics in sports at all levels, but I think that generation is coming up and again I think they're poised to really take advantage of what I think could be a really strong transformation. Maybe you don't tear a building down, but you think really differently about where do you invest long-term versus where do you start thinking about things of, it, I, need, I need to pay for it in a year. I'm going to cash it. I'm going to make money off of it for, for two years. And then in year four, we're tearing it out and starting over again. And that's a everybody from business ops presidents to salespeople to you know venue operators and GMs. That's a different mindset for a lot of people. They're just not used to that. They, they're the Ronco, set it and forget it. I've got a building for 30 years. I just got to keep the, the water from leaking, the lights turning on, the grass has got to grow. And so I think that's, that's where I think that the big opportunity is, but that opportunity is in education, it's in sales, it's in operation, everybody from the event promoters and you know, people moving shows around, what do they think they need? What have they been conditioned to ask for and they always get it, but what could they really do with? as it relates to the income that that generates. I mean, I think there's a whole, really a, a whole interesting dialogue that some of these national conventions could really convene to say, hey, how do we really think about this differently and challenge some of these well-heeled things? Because then you have teams that can generate the amount of money they need to, they can be more sustainable. Like, again, it's a little bit of, of rainbows and unicorns, but then everything just works. 
So, but I think that's where the next generation is going and you're going to monetize through tech. You know, a lot of buildings still don't have adequate Wi-Fi coverage. Now go to a building that's contactless with, with, you know, Amazon, just walk out technology with mobile ordering, digital ticketing, like all the, we want to do sports books, all the things that we're hearing about in a building that doesn't even have Wi-Fi, fan facing Wi-Fi. Like, think about that. And that's- and oh, by the way, if you have the Wi-Fi, but it's terrible, then the yeah. fan experience is not good. And then no one's, you know, they're not coming back to do the same thing that that you're trying to lure them in with and so on. I mean, look, my dad always says, you're, you're always going to pay, right? You either pay now or you pay later. And if you pay later, you're going to pay more. I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and spend a bunch of money on their building. But to that point, it's like, hey, you know, understand to your point, kind of what's the data behind everything that you're trying to accomplish and how do you get there and what's the strategy behind it? But even in the business of sports, and I, I'm not calling anybody out, but I talked to, you know, some of the, the different venue operator, like none of them are IT professionals. They're not software people. They're not tech experts, but yet those are the people making the buy decisions on some of that digital infrastructure. And so then you get all these different, like I've got an iPhone with a, with a Android plug, you know, in a cigarette lighter or something like you have all these disconnected systems that don't talk to each other, that don't have longevity, that aren't able of, of communicating in this sort of digital multi-platform app-based, you know, versus a building management kind of a scenario. So you have a lot of these people who just don't, they don't have the knowledge to make those decisions, but yet they're making those decisions. So then it's like, well, how do you come in and, and, and help them create kind of a completely integrated tech backbone, because that's really what a lot of these buildings need. They need a full tech backbone and then more things become possible, but you got to get to that sort of one key thing. It's like, hey, like with digital ticketing, I, th I think the pandemic has maybe finally put a put to bed the whole paper ticket concepts, but maybe not. There still maybe are some holdouts, but just that, think about how long we, we sort of like, when can we go to a full digital ticket? And they're like, well, mom and dad don't know how to print it out or what, like, there's all those discussions, but you're seeing more and more people get to that optical scanners. Like you go around and you see that experience being far more ubiquitous now than it was even five years ago. And, and mobile ordering too. There are a lot of people who thought mobile ordering was never going to take off. And we all do it. Like, Hey, we all spent the last year, probably mobile ordering food. Like you walk into Starbucks and you haven't mobile ordered, you feel like a dinosaur. It's like, what do you mean? Are you waiting in line? Like that's so 19, 2019, you know, like right. nobody's waiting in line anymore. <laughs> when, the, when the concept first came out, you're like, why would I, I mean, yeah, I can order my pizza like from Domino's and sure they deliver, but like, why would I want someone else to deliver my other? Well, now it's a genius idea and, yeah. and you know, things evolve, right? I mean, the amount of money that you spend on printing tickets not to put the, not to put whoever the business is that prints the tickets, not to put them out of business, but like the amount of money that you actually spend doing that, you could, to, you could then take and put into, to your point, some of the digital technology, there's, there's different ways to go about it. Here's my crazy idea. I'm going to timestamp this podcast because this is going to be, I'm guaranteeing you this is the first place, well, this is the first place I know I've heard of it because I just thought of it. Wait, wait till we get a DoorDash experience in a venue. And I'm, I mean, we've had in-seat service forever and I'm not talking about venue provided, but somebody is going to do a deal with DoorDash or whatever company comes after DoorDash where you can be at your seat, you can order whatever it is you want on the DoorDash app and some random stranger who just wants to be at the game that night is going to go deliver, go pick it up and deliver your food and bring it to your seat. And it's not going to be a stadium employee. 
and it's not going to be like the the attendant like think about well, it like, what if you had a doordash experience in a ballpark john different different context but i was talking with one of my friends who's a school high school school teacher and i said you know what's changed this year and because they are in person and he goes you would not believe how many kids order from DoorDash or Grubhub or, or you know whatever they Uber Eats yeah. to school for, for lunch. lunch because of whether it's the restrictions of you know how they were seating at lunchtime and this that, and the other and he goes you know it'd be a genius idea if you just established from a safety and security perspective if you just established a pickup drop off area in in a designated place where all of the Grubhub DoorDash and Uber Eats drivers knew where to go. And you had a line that you had to show an ID and a receipt and you, I mean, maybe even had a kind of a waiting dashboard, right? Of, of, Hey, who's, who's up next or what orders are coming and it makes it seamless. And then all of a sudden you've got one place, you're not worrying about who's bringing in what, or what, I mean, you, you can control that. And now you've got a ton of different, you know, uh, local restaurants that are being able to feed the students in that perspective. I know that's not, look, a lot easier said than done, and that's not going to be able to happen at all places, but it's a concept. I saw a public speaker. It was definitely a YouTube video, but I don't know if it was like a TED Talk or what several years ago. He's like, okay, I'm from the future. I'm going to, I'm from the future. I'm going back to 2010. And I'm going to tell you that you as a parent are going to have a stranger come to your house in a car. You're going to open the door you're going to put your child in the back of that car, shut the door, and that stranger is going to drive that kid to school. Like some, some example, he's like, I'm from the future. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. It's going to be crazy. And he's like, in 2010, you'd been out of your mind. I'm going to hire, I'm going to call a complete stranger to come pick me or my children or my friends up, get in their car and drive me to a destination and just assume that everything's going to be okay. And now it's like, come on, we do it all the time. Like, hey, no one thinks twice about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, and I know like I know there's rules against underage people in cars, but you'd be surprised in a lot of places where like, hey, your your 17 year old kid is going to call a stranger to come to the house, pick them up. They're going to get in that car willingly, late at night, late at night, even, but you know, yeah. potentially. Yeah, I wasn't raised that way. We didn't no. do that in 1975 in northern Wisconsin. We did not do that. That was not okay. You did that, and you got grounded, and. Now we're doing it 100%. But I'm now now I'm back in 2021. I'm back in the future. And everybody's like, yeah, of course, 100%. Like I know people who would do that to get their kids to school. That to your point about like ordering lunch, that's how they got their kids to school. And it's like, wow. Again, I know you're not supposed to do that, but it happens. And so I think there's there's concepts like that and behaviors like that that if you really start looking around some of the things I say about venues may, maybe don't seem so crazy after all, but we've got to get to that place. You know, I'm so from you've the- got, yeah, you've got DoorDash in a, in a venue. Are there other, uh, I just thought of those ideas that we can share on the podcast. I mean, like if you, like if you had a, if you 2031, we are however, you know, thousands of episodes into life in the front office and you come back and you're like, I told you so. In right. 2021, in my episode, what what is it? Well, I, I still, you know, I, I think I may have mentioned this when I talked to you and Andy a while ago. I still have this idea that the the answer to revenue in sports is I is the iTunes model. Don't sell me increments of 10, 20, 30, 40,000. Like 
the chunks are too big. Sell me, sell me opportunities in 99 cent increments. Because I guarantee you as a person who manages a family iTunes account, the amount of money my family spends on a weekly or monthly basis in 99 cent increments is insane. And we are not a, like, we are, we are not that family. And I keep having to show them the bill. I'm like, do you realize how much money you spent for that cheat code in this game or this thing that you got nothing for? But it was an experience. I mean, you might say Candy Crush is a fan experience. I'm paying 99 cents for this level up. It's a fan experience. I play the game. I, I get enjoyment from that. It's worth 99 cents to me. And they do it without even thinking. But now say the old, it costs too much to take a family to a baseball game because you're buying it in, in big chunks. But if there was a way, and I, I don't know how to do it, but if there was a way to break down that family baseball game into a an increment that was smaller, more recognizable, more understandable. Is that, could you could you provide a similar experience or similar access? Because that may be the term. It may be about access to to have a to sit behind home plate at a major league baseball park or you know field level suites in an NFL stadium, like whatever the thing is you're looking for, that iconic thing, courtside at an NBA game. That at some point that's going to cost money. There's scarcity. It's going to cost money, but is there a way to break that down such that the consumer behavior can rationalize it and you end up making more money as a result? Again, remember, I'm from the future. You're not going to buy records in vinyl. You're not going to have to wait for a record to come out and then you're going to buy and own this thing and you're going to go home and put it down on a thing with a diamond that's going to vibrate and that's how you get sound. You're going to buy songs by track. You're going to buy an album by song and you may never buy the whole album. You might just buy one song and you're going to pay for it and you're going to be happy to pay for it. Like think about that whole, the way iTunes revolutionized that thing or the music sharing. I'm going to subscribe to it. I'm not even going to own the album. I'm just going to rent it for 30 days. Like, well, now, now you've got the subscription models and it's continued to evolve and, and it will continue to evolve from there. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe you thought streaming was going to be the death knell for cable. And now everything's recoalescing around streaming where it's probably going to be more lucrative than cable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. And, and look, we could go on for, for days, I think with ideas and different ways that people can change things. But um, at the end of the day, it all costs money, right? You just got to figure out where it comes from, how it, you know, where are the efficiencies, how is it effective? And, and ultimately it all comes back to the fan, right? Because the fan is the one that is, you know, a enjoying the experience, but B paying for the experience too. But if you knew just for instance, and you're hundred percent, right. But let me, let me sort of riddle you this right now. We, we believe we've been conditioned to believe that if I want to build a new, if I'm not one of the two or three really wealthy NFL owners who it le legitimately has money to burn. If I'm one of the normal NFL owners, college sports team, minor league ball club, if I wasn't conditioned to believe that it takes 30 plus years to pay for this thing, and now there was a business model and a revenue stream where I could pay for it in five, what would be my interest in building if I knew I could get the money out faster versus having a historical database of buildings, again, that maybe weren't designed to be race cars. They weren't designed to be well handling sports cars. They were Buick station wagons. You don't take a Buick station wagon to Le Mans. You just don't, there's a reason. But what if, what if you knew there was enough income and there was enough way to monetize that you could pay for a stadium in five years, not 30? Would the attitudes about that it's just money change? Because now like that's, that's kind of like Wi-Fi and bandwidth. The, 
the transformation of a digital infrastructure when we went from copper to fiber. Now you put a you put a bundle of fiber the size of this pen into a building, you've got capacity likely for the next 30 years. There may not be technology that exists in the next decade that that one ballpoint pen of fiber can handle. Like you'll never, it'll laugh at you for, for the next 10 years. You can't say that about copper. So now if bandwidth is endless, what would you do? Because we're all worried about like, I can't get enough Wi-Fi because the, the, the transmission vehicles, the technology is still inherently inefficient. But what if, what if that constraint was gone? What would happen to the consumer experience if bandwidth and Wi-Fi access were unlimited? What would you do? You eliminate the constraints and the ideas are endless, right? And yeah, I think, yeah. and possibilities. Model is different. Like everything about it is different. Right now we're still in this model of there's more impediments than there are clear line of sight to opportunity. Everybody, like op optimists will always see opportunity but there's still so many, like the Moore's law hasn't kicked in on everything yet where we're in that exponential growth phase. We're still, we're still in the flat part of the Moore's law curve. But once it goes vertical, it doubles every year. It triples, it, it you know, grows in, in exponential increments every year. And then the experience can't keep up with the pace of the advancement. Then what happens to, to business? What happens to venues? What happens to that's where I think, again, back to the initial question that like, how do we do this? It's, it's at a point now we're recognizing the opportunities, having conversations with clients about what things do you want to massage? Like what, what, are, what are tried and true principles that are going to be tried and true for the next 20 years versus where's the opportunity to be flexible? Where's the opportunity to maybe spend less, think differently about flexibility? So if something changes in three years, it's easier for you to adapt and you can do it more efficiently, time, money, revenue loss, whatever it might be, that's a different, smarter approach. But it also means those are conversations we have with, with clients and institutions that are not transactional. It's a relationship, it's a, it's a business partnership. And, and some of us in my business, I mean, again, at some point, the degree, the degree on that wall says architect, and I'm not an MBA, I'm not a hedge fund manager, I'm not a team owner. All I can do is sort of point them in that direction and be their consigliere. I'm their design, their design consigliere and say, these are the things you should think about. And so a lot of the thing that's interesting about me, my experience so far is I have a lot of relationships that I measure in, in decades. I've had a couple of client relationships, project relationships, where if I can get a job done like from, from conversation and vision to cutting the ribbon, if that takes less than 15 years, it feels transactional. <laughs> like you That's have- insane. That's insane. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, obviously ticket sales, transactional sponsorships, it's kind of on that annual, like, can you get a deal done in a year kind of thing? Maybe a little bit more. I mean, a 15 year runway though on the relationship, that's, I mean, you got to really dive in deep on, you know, the, the needs analysis in a sense and kind of uncover some some stones that aren't turned over for five years. Well, and think about the generational ownership of, of some teams. You know, you're on the second or third generation in some cases. Some of these folks want to be owners forever. They've, they've done their thing and this is going to be their next thing. Other people, it's like, hey, we have to have a, we don't want to get it wrong. So we want to be deliberate. We need a true we need positive income generation from this investment. So we wanna be thoughtful about it. It might take us time to articulate that case, whatever it might be, but it's, 
it's a different it's a different approach there are plenty of you know wham bam thank you ma'am projects and and partners and people out there that just get it done and, and move on and and we'll sort it out later but i think that that's been been just really that's been the fascinating part for me is like when you get into that with some of these folks who are i don't want to say thoughtful because that implies other people are not but they they're just asking questions they want to know why they want to challenge the, the commonly held belief, whatever that might be, ticket sales, sponsorship, seating, inventory, capacity, like all that stuff. They want to they want to know, and then they want to ask that question. Well, what does that mean? And and so I think from that perspective, those are the those have been kind of the really enriching experiences. But then as a as an architect or a, a facility designer or somebody who lives in this sports business, that's where it's our responsibility to ask those questions to challenge that. That's where I love the. Look, I'm not not a math guy. If I was a math guy, I wouldn't have gone into architecture. But that's where I really like the the fan facing research, the impact of analytics. And I'm not talking about you know baseball purists. Don't at me. But like I like the impact of a of a different decision a different decision tree that might include in, intuition and predictive analytics and some AI, some different ways of thinking about the research model, like all politics is local. Well, guess what? All is sports revenue is the same way. In a lot of ways, there's there's sort of a, a high level of national, but then when you get down to sort of butts and seats or markets, there's demographics that are going to be yours and yours alone. Behavior models, tendencies that are going to be yours and yours alone. And you want that. That's what fan loyalty is about. Like if Major League Baseball, NFL, college, it's not McDonald's. I can't go anywhere and get the same experience. I go to this thing because it struck a chord with me emotionally or family, or there's a passion or some great experience. Like all those things are, are personal. And the more you sort of personify those brands and those experiences, the more you, you develop that loyalty. Again, that's something we all know, but we haven't approached that from a, a business model standpoint, because it always feels dirty when you want to talk about revenue and, and metrics, at least to the, to the consumer, it feels dirty. Um, but to the people in the business, it feels like that's the opportunity to really Make, make teams sustainable, make venues more sustainable so we don't have to tear them down every 20 years, make athletics more sustainable and open up some of these other opportunities that are happening in the, the quote, amateur space. Like you, you create more opportunity by, by trying to transform the model. I mean, fascinating thoughts. Obviously, as, as you're listening to this, there's a lot of different ways your mind can go. And, and obviously you're extremely knowledgeable with all the experience you've had in the industry, but you know, just the brain power, right? That it takes to kind of connect all these dots, right? To understand the different layers and the different angles, um, you know, no, no pun intended with state, you know, stadiums, but you know, I, I wanna quickly transition, you know, into, into the brain fuel segment, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you're talking about 15-year relationships. You're talking about buildings and, and venues that take a long time to get put together. You know, how do you sustain that kind of vision and the productivity and the mentality to get it done? What, what's, what's behind the, you know, long-term sustained vision and, and passion and energy behind it? I mean, for me personally, it's, it's just about being genuine with people. Like I seek out genuine relationships. I seek out people that want to, will allow me to get to know them. Even if it's just professionally, they, I can spend time with them. We can talk about, you know, the, the soft edges of their, 
sport or their business more than it's always, you know, so, so locked in and agenda focused. And yeah, if they care about me, great. I don't, it's not so much about me, but I think some of it's about relationships. It's understanding who those people are. Um, you know, the great line, Hey, before you try to reinvent my business, you should know my business. You got to spend time in some of these communities and their fans and understand what their special thing is. And that takes time too. You don't go to one game and understand the history of baseball. You don't go to one NASCAR race and know what it was like to, to race on the beach of Daytona in the fifties. You know, I can't go to, I can't go to, to Le Mans and understand, you know, what the beginnings of formula one were. I just, it takes time. And so at some point, those genuine experiences, those genuine facilities, those more successful transformative facilities are the ones that take time. And I think like, look, we can look around. Everyone knows the, everyone knows the buildings or the experiences or the venues that are more pedestrian or don't feel as genuine sure. versus the ones that everybody, it's on the bucket list. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. bucket list. And you know those. And, and that's, you can't fake that. So hey. that's what I like about it. You, you brought up Ford v. Ferrari. Great movie, by the way. Um, and I, I, if you could have the brain of either Mr. Ford or Mr. Ferrari, which one would you choose? Carol Shelby. <laughs> Different answer, but great. It's a great, it's a great one. Um, it's definitely worth, worth a watch or two or three if you haven't seen it multiple times now. Um, John, how do you mentally prepare for your day? Is there, is there anything specific that you do to mentally kind of get in the zone for you? Well, it's funny. Um, I, I, for a long time, I had, I don't know what I, right now, the thing that I stare in front of me is a little mantra list, but it's a lot of like Stuart Smalley. <laughs> it's a little, a lot of self-affirmation, a lot of thinking, um, Hey, what do I want to do today? You gotta have, I, I, I talk to a lot of my folks that I get, I I'm, I'm blessed to work with mentor be around. I'm like, your goals need to have length. Like I always like I'll date myself. Like the old Price is Right game with the little mountain climber. You always oh, want to fantastic. be. I know. Yeah. It's you always want to be going upward. Your goals, in some way, your goals need to be unattainable, because you're always chasing them. It's the great Matthew McConaughey, who's my hero. My hero's me in five years. When you get there, did you find your hero yet? No, my hero's me five years down the road. So I try to think about that from a, from a, a motivation and a goal and a vision and a strategy perspective. Is what's what's next, what's out there, what are we looking at, what are we chasing, what are we trying to aspire to, and then that, that usually gets it, gets it done, at least gets it done for me, you know, because that always, then you're always working on something, you're always chasing something, you're always trying to be better, and, and, and I, I think that's, that's, you know, what's, what's kept me motivated the last, you know, 25 years. Yeah, you have a unique perspective where you're in sports business, but you're also, associated and and you get to see a lot of different parts of an entirely different industry what's the most important aspect of the mental side of the business that you work in mental side of the business i work in you know the the one i, I think this is an answer the thing that i always try to remind myself is it's it's not mine it's yours it's not about me it's about me channeling you and figuring out how do we come up with that solution. But if, again, it's another thing I say, if you're ever in a discussion, me, me, you, someone, and it's about what I want, you, you're already, that, that's like a red flag and a stop sign. You're always trying to figure out how are you, 
how are you putting yourself in the mindset of that person? What, what makes them successful? What's their worries? You know, what, what, what are they, what do they need? And how do you give that to them? How do they measure success? Not how do you measure success? And, and I think if you can kind of continue to keep yourself in the mind of your client and your, your customer, that's better. But once it becomes about you, like just as me, me personally, once it becomes about, about you or me or my designer or my tech, you're missing the boat. It's not, it's never about you. You never want to have a client say, Oh, uh, you, that's a great building, John. It's like, no, my building is awesome. Thank you for helping me. Like it, they have to own it. It has to, it has to be personified to that team, that place, whatever it is. I mean, the, the best buildings are the ones, the communities, the fans, the players that they embrace it as theirs. And if you can do that, that's always, to me, that's always a good, you're on the right path. It's, it's the ones that they call home and, um, and, you know, really great perspectives, insights. I mean, you could probably listen over to this one, you know, a couple times uh, and hear something different, learn something different. So really appreciate your wealth of knowledge. And you heard it here first, DoorDash within a stadium. Not sure what it's going to be called, but some sort of DoorDash within a stadium. You heard it here. Uh, John, really appreciate the time. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by BrainFuel. Remember, you can get 15% off your next purchase at brainfuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, fuel.com, with the code LIFO15, L-I-F-O-1-5 at checkout. And a reminder to get your copy of LOL, Loss of Logo, What's Your Next Move? Our new book written by Andy Dolich and your host, Jake Hirschman. If you go to mascotbooks.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll receive 50% off at your checkout or available on Amazon, ebook, and print.